If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Beyond the Paper Gown, hosted by Dr. Mitzi Krakover, helps people think critically about women's health issues, encouraging them to question and explore the complexities of healthcare systems, scientific advancements, and societal norms. There's a really cool episode that you should check out called Midday Menopause App. And that's about how AI and sensor technology can provide personalized interventions to manage menopause symptoms effectively. Check out Beyond the Paper Gown on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. They say, well, we have translator service, so we can just call someone to come translate. Well, if I am a woman and the available translator is a man, I am not going to answer all your questions. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Raj Sundar, a family physician, community organizer, and host for this podcast. Welcome to the Healthcare for Humans podcast, the show dedicated to exploring the history and culture of diverse communities, so clinicians are equipped with the right knowledge to care for all patients. In this episode, we'll be talking about the Ethiopian community in in all likelihood, you've probably eaten in an Ethiopian restaurant recently because Ethiopian food has become a staple cuisine. In fact, over 13,000 Ethiopian immigrants live in King County, and they make up the largest portion of the East African population. Before talking more about this community, let's review some stats to set the context. First, Ethiopia is a resilient country. Ethiopia is the largest country in the Horn of Africa, has never been colonized, and has the fastest growing economy in Africa. Second, Ethiopia is diverse. There are 115 million people who live in nine regional states, and together they speak more than 80 languages and approximately 200 dialects. Among these languages, there are two predominant ones, Amharic and Oromo. 33% of people speak Amharic and 33% speak Oromo. The two other main languages that you should know about are Somali and Tigrinya. About 6% of people speak each of those languages. The last statistic to know is about religion. Roughly two-thirds of the population identify as Christians, and the rest identify as Muslims. The majority of the Christian population belong to the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. Now that you have that context, let's dig deeper to understand what this means for providing clinical care. Rahel Schwartz will be joining us today to explore the history and culture of the Ethiopian community Rahel was born in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, and lived in Kenya and Arkansas before making her way to Seattle in 1994. She's currently the Program Executive for Health Equity at the YMCA of Greater Seattle and helps design and implement culturally and linguistically tailored chronic disease prevention programs. Today, we talk about the history of Ethiopian immigration, the problem of brain waste, making a traditional Ethiopian diet healthier, the role of religion and culture, the complexity of living in a multi-generational household, and gaining trust before providing health education. Without further delay, here's Rahel. Okay, welcome to the show, Rahel. Thank you for having me. Before we get started, tell me your story. What brought you to Seattle? So I came to United States in 1989 to pursue my education, but I moved to Arkansas to do my undergraduate uh, studies in biology and chemistry. And I moved to Seattle in 1993 to do my graduate studies. I wanted to do clinical research and wanted to work at 
either Red Hatch or Seattle children. So I moved here and I've been living here ever since. It feels like you have achieved all your dreams. You do health equity work for the whole community and you're on, I think, multiple community boards, right? Yes. Red Hatch, you dumb. So you're able to influence and guide those large institutions towards caring for the community. Absolutely. I think having been here as a young person and also having both my parents are from Ethiopia, I have the perspective of both worlds being educated and living here. I'm also very familiar and close to our culture. It gives me a better perspective. Yeah, we need people like you to bridge the gap the glue that keeps it together, right? Let's yeah. jump in then. Today's episode's on the Ethiopian community. I'll start out with a little history and correct me if it needs more context. We need to talk about anything else. But let's start in the 1970s. So after 33 years of continuous rule by Emperor Haile Selassie, in 1974, a communist military junta called the Derg seized power. I think that's when things got really tough in Ethiopia because it was an oppressive regime that caused political turmoil and wide-scale drought. I think one in 20 Ethiopians left the country during that time. Correct. During that period, there was a lot of immigration. First, there was the 1960s wave of immigration from Ethiopia, where it was primarily university students wanting to study here and then go back to Ethiopia and work there. But because of the regime change, it became really tough to go back. And a lot of people didn't want to go back. The second wave started in the 1980s when more refugees came to Washington under the Refugee Act. That's where we saw the biggest growth of the Ethiopian population in Washington. Then the last wave was the 2000s, where more Ethiopians relocated to Washington under the diversity immigration visa, which is more of a lottery system. And I think we do it a disservice when we call Ethiopians just Ethiopians, because there's probably smaller communities within that community. So you're correct. All the information is right. We have approximately 86 different languages and dialects spoken in Ethiopia. Harik is the national language, and I only speak that. So if I go back to Ethiopia and drive about 45 minutes outside the capital city, I will be the same as if you are traveling there because I don't speak the language. Mm -hmm. So the way we communicate, what we eat is different for each tribe. So you can't really put all Ethiopians in one pot. So if somebody is uh, in the hospital in front of a medical provider, we think the best thing to do is having a translator there, but usually that, that doesn't work. So our background is so different unless you are intentional. Yeah, there's so many ways I think we could segment the, the diversity of e the Ethiopian population. Let's try languages. You mentioned you speak Amharic. I think the mm -hmm. other two are Romo and Tigray. Uh, yeah, right. so Eritrea mm -hmm. used to be part of Ethiopia, mm -hmm. but they became, they were an independent country about probably 20 something years ago. They speak Tigrinya, but there are other tribes who are part of Ethiopia who speak Tigrinya. 
And then Oromo is the one of the largest tribe other than the Hara tribe who speak Amharic. Those are the three major languages that are spoken by Ethiopian and Eritrean uh, communities. Okay. So the languages are Haric, Oromo, and Tigrinya, right? Correct. You mentioned they live in South King County. I know because of what's happening in our city, people keep moving further and further south. Where do people live right now? And are there different neighborhoods where people, for example, who speak Amharic live? Is there a different neighborhood where people who have more of an Eritrean background live? Not necessarily. So years ago, in the 60s, when people relocated here, most of the population lived in the central district. And 30 years ago, when I moved to Seattle, the population of black and brown people who live in the central district was about 72%. Now it's about 11%. So because of gentrification, as the communities are being redeveloped and rent is getting expensive, people are being pushed out more south. But there isn't really one specific area they move to. Not everybody moved to like Renton or Kent, but majority of them do reside in, in South King County. Now we're going even further to federal way. It's not affordable to, to live in Seattle anymore. There are a large population who live in the North End, mm-hmm. which a lot of times people do not know. I live in Linwood, and there's a huge population in Linwood and Bothell. Yeah, I think we assume that people only live in the South. Gentrification pushes people both directions. Another phenomenon with Ethiopian immigrants is that there's a brain waste because people who have PhDs or doctors in Ethiopia come here, but because of the barriers for re-education or licensing, end up working as an Uber driver or in a small grocery store. The, the problem is when you come as an immigrant, even though you have the medical degree and you're a successful doctor, when you come to the States, there isn't a system set up for you to transition and be successful. And then when you have a family in addition to that, and you have to feed your family and you don't know how to navigate the system to support their family. So a lot of East African people actually in the medical care, they work as a nursing assistant because it Mm. takes about six weeks to get trained and certified. It's an easy way to start working and support your family, but people get stuck there. So you meet people who are doctors and practice medicine back home, working as Uber driver or taxi driver, or they work like in in parking lot. And, And the other thing I think a lot of times people don't know is people who are immigrated and come here, they still have families back home. And they do feel like they're responsible to support them too. So they really don't have the luxury of coming here and taking time to find a job. They just got to do what they got to do. As an immigrant, when you come here, you have six months that the the government supports you. Mm -hmm. After that, Mm -hmm. you're on your own. So if English is not your first language, you really don't have a lot of choices. So people 
do whatever they can to support their family. You know, I have a lot of patients who are from Ethiopia who work as CNAs in living facilities, adult family mm-hmm. homes. As as you just noted, it's such a privilege to know how to navigate a medical system. But on top of that, there's a necessity of surviving in this country like, and supporting the family back home. Just right. imagine how people get, as you said, stuck, unfortunately, and we don't create systems to facilitate people doing what they're good at. When I have Ethiopian patients, a lot of them want people that look like them because they want people that right. can speak Amharic. And yeah. there are people in this community who are doctors back home who can actually care for people in that way. And unfortunately, I feel like we still have some work to do to help people thrive after immigrating to a community like this. Correct. Okay, this is my favorite topic to talk about, eating. I've I've heard, Rahel, that you're a great cook. I believe I am. (laughs) (laughs) So Ethiopian food is a staple of the city's cuisine. Like Wherever I go, there's a lot of Ethiopian restaurants. So people are aware a little bit about what Ethiopian food is. But I want to dig a little deeper into it because as a physician, I'm talking to people about food a lot. If people get diabetes, if people have high blood pressure, I want to know what they're eating, seeing if they can modify their diet somehow. Unfortunately, for many clinicians, all they can do is recommend the Mediterranean diet. (laughs) It's completely overhauling a culture, right? As an Indian, I grew up eating a lot of rice with curry. If I was diagnosed with diabetes, I'm not going to cut out everything that's related to my Indian culture, right? Right. We need to find ways to modify it that still can manage illness and help you still feel connected to your culture. I preface that because I think it's important to dig deeper into the food components of a traditional Ethiopian diet. I think most people know about injera and what. Mm-hmm. What other typical food items are in a traditional Ethiopian diet? What should we know about as doctors? So Ethiopian people would eat beef, lamb, and chicken. And most people eat fish just during fasting, like during Lent. Other than that, our food mainly consists of vegetables. So we eat a lot of lentils, split peas, spinach, cabbage, potatoes, carrots. Sounds a lot healthier in many ways than than the typical American diet. It is a lot healthier, but that all depends on how you cook it. And I think if we just, if we can take that and teach people to cook the healthier, version of the Ethiopian food without losing its authenticity. What's a healthier version? Is it the oil that it's cooked in? Yeah, we use a lot of oil because in our culture, we don't measure anything. And also, in addition to oil, we use a lot of butter. And it is cooked with different spices so that it has flavor, but we put unnecessarily too much oil in, in butter. Uh, and also, when we cook the vegetables, we cook it so much, it loses its nutritional value. So I did a, a food demo a couple of weeks ago uh, in collaboration with Herbal League. And what we were teaching people is take two dishes from the Ethiopian food and how can you make it using fresh herbs and 
very small amount of oil, but that you can still eat your traditional food, which is what people eat all the time. Uh, a lot of Ethiopians don't go to restaurants to eat sushi or Mexican food. Most people eat traditional food day in, day out. Like the injera is made out of grain called teff. Now, in, in the United States, because it was hard to buy that, they replace it with wheat flour, not a whole wheat flour. So it completely changes what you're eating. So a lot of immigrants will come to the States. The first year, they say you gain about 10 to 20 pounds. Mm, yeah. You're eating the same thing. But the ingredients is different. Back home, most of the things are organic. So even though we eat it all day or out, obesity was never an issue. Now, one of the major issues in the United States and the East African community is diabetes and high blood pressure and all of these chronic illnesses. So when you look at the, the ingredients, you say, this is what we want everybody to eat. It's just how we cook it. That's such a good point. Since people are cooking at home, they do have a lot more control compared to eating mm -hmm. out. Uh, what I hear from you is with the injera, a lot of people use white flour. They do it because of cost, because teff is hard to find or right. expensive. What is a healthy right. alternative to make injera? I think whole wheat or a bulgur, mm -hmm. those are the healthier alternative. Mm. And also they are like they're not as expensive. If you yeah. buy it in bulk, like you said, you're from India. If you become diabetic, if I tell you, well, you should be eating Ethiopian food every day, <laughs> but it's not realistic. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. So I hear whole wheat flour with teff for injera, less mm -hmm. butter, maybe less oil when we're cooking the mm -hmm. vegetables. It makes me excited to eat at your house. Sounds like I'll get fresh, organic cooked yes. meals, right? <laughs> in two weeks. <laughs> The Tops. date's set. <laughs> okay, we covered food. What about the role of alcohol in drinking? Anything we should know about that? I know there's local drinks in Ethiopia. I don't know if people are drinking that here, like Tej and Tela. Am I saying that right? Yeah. Uh -huh. So Tej is honey wine. So mm -hmm. it's made out of honey, fermented for days and days out. And then tanla is made out of, I forgot the name of the grain. Same thing. But a lot of people drink beer. Yeah. Most women don't drink alcohol. There are a lot of other alcoholic drinks that is made at home, but it's not really popular here because you can't really make it here yeah. other than the honey wine. Yeah. Okay. And the coffee is an important part of Ethiopian culture, right? There's a ceremony yes. around it. Is that still continued here yes for people who who do not know and who mm -hmm. think that coffee is originated in colombia it is originated in ethiopia actually the name coffee came from the place that was found in origin called kafa that's when the name is derived from but coffee is traditionally we drink in the morning after we eat lunch mm -hmm. and after we eat dinner in the ceremony takes about an hour to an hour and a half. So we usually don't do it in America because you don't have an hour and a half to drink coffee three I times wish. Yeah. a day. <laughs> and the ceremony is pan roasting raw coffee beans and then brewing the beans in a clay pot, 
right? It's yes. called heaven. Am I saying that right? Yes. And and also, we have to have a snack, a popcorn or piece of bread, homemade bread. And we drink it in a very, very small cup because the coffee is very strong. It's like drinking the, the shots that the people put in a latte. Yeah, yeah. I usually drink a, a double shot or a triple shot. Triple shot. No it big has deal. to be strong. Yeah. Yeah. And people in Ethiopia are still able to sleep. It sounds like coffee three times a day. Oh, it does nothing to us. <laughs> I drink good. coffee before I go to sleep. Like, I'm serious. Yeah. I think it's helpful to know how important coffee is to the Ethiopian culture because sometimes with people with anxiety, it can make you feel a little more nervous and sometimes can make your uh, heart rate go a little faster, make you feel like you have palpitations. Not saying you need to stop drinking coffee, but it's helpful to know if that needs late. to be part of the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's too late. Okay, next up is culture. It's a big word. I think it'll be helpful to actually start the culture part of it with religion. Because the two major religions in Ethiopia are the Ethiopian Orthodox Christianity and then mm -hmm. Islam. Right? Mm -hmm. I think Orthodox Christianity is a big part of Ethiopian culture. Mm -hmm. Some of the big dates I think are important for people to know. One date is, I think, Christmas is January 7th. Before that, there's 43 days of fasting. Right. And then the second right. important date is Ethiopian Easter, where there's 55 days of fasting. Right. Right. Are those the two important dates in your mind? Are there any others? Those are the two major holidays attached to the Orthodox Church and also tradition. So culture and tradition in Ethiopia is intertwined. So you can't just talk about culture without talking about tradition because the majority of the population are Orthodox. My grandparents, both sides, were conservative. Orthodox. So when my father was converted and got baptized in, in the faith that we, we practice right now, he was disowned by his family. So it was my mom. It's not so much that my parents didn't go to church every Sunday and participate in the worship service. It's mm -hmm. because traditionally, if your parents, if your great-grandparents are Orthodox, you are expected to be one. So you lose your entire community. You can lose your entire family because of that. Wow. Because. Yeah. yeah. I think it's important from what I think of when I have conversations with teenagers or kids who are forming their identities, they have to navigate both American culture and Ethiopian culture. And we have to be careful about that. I think one thing to consider is we live in a multi-generational home. Mm -hmm. So there are the parents. And then, then there are the grandparents, and then there are the kids who were born and being raised in the United States. They're exposed to different culture, no matter how long we live in the United States. And I mean, having kids in, in the United States, one of the hardest thing is to balance. I want to raise my kids with my mm -hmm. culture, and they're exposed to it, but I also have to be open to learn the culture here so that they won't feel completely excluded. But in our culture, kids don't have any say. As long as you are in the house, it doesn't matter if you're 18 years old. 
During COVID, one of the major issues when the vaccine became available for kids under 18, the, the young people want to get vaccinated because they understand the benefit, but they still need to get their parents' permission. And there mm-hmm. are a lot of parents who do not want to, to give that permission for their kids. So navigating that is so hard because you have to educate the parents Without their blessing, you can't really do anything. So as long as you are living together, you're dealing with three different, completely different populations of ideas and beliefs and culture and tradition. It's really hard for someone from, from here to prescribe anything. I can't do it. And I'm from the community. You really need to design, like, what could I say to... The parents, that's not going to turn them off. And then also for the grandparents to understand. And then the young people who are being born and raised here, how could we fill that generational gap? Yeah, there needs to be messaging specific for each age group because their beliefs around health is different. You made also a point, just like many other communities, I think Ethiopian community have multi-generational households compared to some uh, American families which have nuclear families. And I think the, yeah. the experience of just life is different when you have a multi-generational household. This is actually a good segue into health beliefs because I heard about this event a few times. During COVID, the Ethiopian Community Center had a virtual call and uh-huh. You all talked about vaccine safety and hesitancy. There was uh, doctors who spoke Amharic, and people were laughing on the call. They asked a lot of questions, and after the event, people actually got vaccinated. It was remarkable because there was a lot of skepticism around messaging from healthcare organizations that the vaccine was safe, and there was a lot of vaccine hesitancy. As clinicians, I feel we're not the most trusted people in the community right now. (laughs) Right. But my question is, what are the health beliefs that people hold that is important for us to know? And where do people turn for health information? I always say that as a Black woman, mm-hmm. I have my own experience in navigating the healthcare system. Even as educated as I am, I think the mistrust is not based out of nothing. But during covid when hospitals approached us, the why, and they wanted us to help them vaccinate communities of color who were disproportionately affected by COVID. We wanted to make sure that people get the right information because there were so many messages. And for a population who mistrust the medical system already, When you are learning different information on a regular basis, you don't know what to think. And the reason why we were adamant about providing workshops to create a space for people to come in and get the information from people who look like them, who are physicians, who have worked in the community, who knows the culture, who know how to communicate some messages. It gave them the opportunity to ask whatever questions that they needed. I remember one of the questions, which is really funny, is one of the ladies said, why are they giving the vaccine for only 65 
and older. Are they trying to get rid of us? That was the mentality. Oh, they are vaccinating us. They chose this population because we're older. So maybe they're trying to get rid of us. Some people actually chose to go get the vaccine at the hospital instead of these mobile clinics because they thought that the vaccine that are being provided in these communities were different. They must have a different mm. batch of vaccines for Black people. So instead of coming to the mobile clinic, I want to go to where all the white people are getting the vaccine to make sure that they're not giving me a different one. For medical health provider, you don't think about these things, but this is what's in, in people's mind. Relationship is, is everything. Working with the why, whatever we do is based on relationship. So when we facilitate the COVID vaccine, we wanted to make sure we recruited community members on the day off to help with filling out the information because people think that we wouldn't lie to them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they want people who look like them, right? Right. I think that is the most important thing. And I think for medical providers, sometimes what they don't think about it, if I come to see you and I don't speak English, they say, well, we have translator service, so we can just call someone to come translate. Well, if I am a woman and the available translator is a man, I am not going to tell you or answer all your questions that you ask me. These are just mm -hmm. basic questions like intake form. Yeah. Because in our culture, there are things that you don't talk to a man. Yeah. But yeah. you as a medical provider, you're trying to get as much information as you can so that you can better serve the person. These are the small things that yeah. you have to consider can make a big difference. They're saying gender congruence. So if it's a female mm -hmm. patient, making sure a female interpreter is available, right. not just anyone. That's an important point. Right. I heard you say you're always working on creating spaces where you can build trust with the community, continue to build relationships so people are open to receiving new information. Is there anywhere else they connect with, have relationships with, specifically around organizations? It sounds like the Ethiopian Community Center is one. Are there organizations like that people have relationships with? Faith-based organizations. Most of our partners mm. that we have done successful workshops or provide screening for whether it's uh, vaccine or mammogram have been faith-based organizations because faith-based organizations are the most trusted place for Ethiopian population. That's where most people congregate other than the community centers. I do work on HIV research, and one thing we found out through formative data collection is actually train faith-based leaders themselves. Mm -hmm. You have to get their buy-in before you approach their congregation. Mm -hmm. So yeah. educating them is like the, the best way to engage in health education. We have them lead us into what are their immediate needs? You address their immediate needs, and that's how you build relationships. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Rahel. I have one last question, which is, what is one thing that you want your doctor to know about your background as an Ethiopian? I think don't assume that 
I don't know about my health. I think that's the problem with a lot of medical providers that they tend to undermine or treat patients based on their own biases, not necessarily based on what the person is. So take the time to get to know the person in order to treat the person. So if I come into your space as a patient, and if I say I'm from Ethiopia, don't put me in a box where you already make your decision. Well, because people's lived experience, navigating, being an immigrant is not an easy thing. Learning a new language, adapted new culture, work and survive and thrive. But most of the time, people put us in a box like she's from Ethiopia, so she's this and she's that. That's a good takeaway. What I hear from you is this podcast is designed to teach clinicians on the different parts of culture, but don't put any single person into a box. So always be yes. open to listening and building relationships. But hopefully this uh, podcast will help people get closer to at least know what questions to ask so they can be right. relevant and earn the trust of the people that we're caring for. I agree 100%. Thank you so much, Rahel. I appreciate you. Thank you for having me and for the opportunity. Thanks for joining me, Raj Sundar, in another episode of the Healthcare for Humans podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to help support this work, please share it with others and leave a review. Show notes can be found over at healthcareforhumans.org. Feel free to contact me through the website for feedback and show ideas or email me at healthcareforhumans at yahoo.com. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent any of the participants past, current, or future employers unless explicitly expressed as so. Always seek advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with regards to your own personal questions about medical conditions you may be experiencing. This Healthcare for Humans project is based on Duwamish land and makes a regular commitment to real rent Duwamish. If you enjoy podcasts like this, you should check out our author shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Beyond the Paper Gown, hosted by Dr. Mitzi Krakover helps people think critically about women's health issues, encouraging them to question and explore the complexities of healthcare systems, scientific advancements, and societal norms. There's a really cool episode that you should check out called Midday Menopause App, and that's about how AI and sensor technology can provide personalized interventions to manage menopause symptoms effectively. Check out Beyond the Paper Gown on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.